There is a, a scene recorded in the Gospels that has always caught my attention as I've read through. In the book of Matthew, you can read about Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And he's headed there because he knows that in a number of days, he's going to be arrested and tried and ultimately is going to be put to death. And he comes into the city to great praise and enthusiasm. And there are people, uh, tons of people, throngs of people gathered together waving palm branches and singing Hosanna, crying out praises to Jesus as he rides into the city. And shortly thereafter that, he gets off the donkey and the crowds disperse and Jesus makes his way to the temple. And when he gets there, what he sees are individuals set up selling various goods to people who come into the temple. Animals for sacrifice, um, other items necessary for the operating and functioning of not just the uh, Jewish religion, but also just for the functioning of the temple. And they're making a profit off of it. They're being dishonest with one another. And Jesus walks in, and it so disturbs him that he becomes righteously indignant about it. And what's so arresting when you're reading the gospel account is that Jesus begins to flip over the tables of the money changers, and he begins to run out people from the temple courts. And I always try to think of it from the perspective of one of the disciples. You've spent about three years with this man. You've seen him be a person of unrivaled, unequaled peace. And here he is, unbelievably angry. And you're witnessing an, an outpouring of emotion and a response that you've never seen from Jesus before. He's angry. He's looking around the temple courts and he's thinking to himself, this is not what my father intended. This is not how things were supposed to operate. This wasn't the vision. And in that perfectly righteous anger, he's flipping over tables and he's running people out of the temple courts. And at some point, there's a moment where Jesus must have been standing there in the midst of a more or less empty area with the disciples looking at him with their mouths hanging open like, what just happened? It's hard right now to watch the news and see things come across the newspaper or the news station or your cell phone or however it is that you digest what's happening in the world around us and to repeatedly see things like what just took place in Nice, France or what took place in an Orlando club not long ago or the explosion that happened outside a soccer stadium in Paris. We're inundated by those things all the time that on this large scale there is senseless loss of life. And I can't help but look at those events and think to myself, this is not how it's supposed to be. That we could have as humanity such disregard for one another's lives that in mass someone just ends another person's life. That's not how the world is supposed to function. And on a smaller, more personal scale, in the last 10 days, there have been numerous 
events within our country. By Thursday night, uh, July 7th, as I was scrolling through my Twitter feed, and repeatedly I saw mention of the death of Alton Sterling, the death of Philandro Castile. And then that evening, there's news of five police officers in Dallas who also lost their lives. I hope you know their names as well. Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamaripa, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Lauren Ahearns. Just this morning, in the middle of second service, seven police officers were shot in Baton Rouge and three lost their lives. It's impossible to look at those things and not think to myself, this is not how it's supposed to be. As righteously upset as I can possibly be, marked by my own sin and knowing that that exists within me, it's like I want to just flip over tables. In the words of Popeye, I've had all I can stand, and I can't stand it anymore. You may be here this morning and have very strong thoughts and opinions about the circumstances that surround the deaths of people like Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Freddie Gray, Alton Sterling, Philandro Castile. You might be here this morning and have very, very strong opinions about the methods used by the Black Lives Matter movement. My goal this morning is not to change your opinion on the circumstances of any of those incidents. It's not to change your opinion on what you think about the methods or tactics used by the movement. My goal this morning is to talk about the underlying reality that makes this a conversation at all, and that's that there is racial tension in our country that cannot continue. There is a reality in our nation that is just boiling to the surface and it must be addressed. Racial tension is real. The need for reconciliation is real. The brokenness of our world literally screams at us off the pages of newspapers every morning. And there are Numerous causes within the brokenness of humanity that we as Christians should be responding to, need to be responding to, need to understand how to interact with and engage with in a Christ-centered way. And this morning, we want to give attention to one of those, and that's racial reconciliation, racial injustice. Enough is enough, church. We have to respond. And I understand that the overarching answer, the macro scale answer, is Jesus. People need Jesus. I understand that the kind of sin and brokenness we see in the world every day is not going to completely disappear until Christ returns a second time and puts an eternal end to the work of Satan in our world. But while we pray for him to hasten to our eternal rescue, I don't for one second 
believe that God would have us throw our hands up in the air and admit defeat and do nothing to confront the reality of sin in our midst. The question then is how, as followers of Jesus, are we to respond to racial tension and the need for racial reconciliation in America? This morning, what I want to do is give what I think are five biblical, gospel-centered, kingdom-minded, politically neutral ways to engage this topic. The first is this. Seek repentance where needed. It's really, really easy to point the finger outward when we confront issues like those that are facing our nation right now. But I believe that Scripture paints the picture that all significant internal change and all significant societal change begins at a place of taking a hard look inward, begins with repentance. And over the course of the last week or so, I've needed to repent of a few things. Much of that, the vast majority of that, has taken place between myself and the Lord. But some of that needs to take place publicly. I believe that a significant part of confession and repentance is that it takes place within the confines of a loving body of Christ. So I need to spend some time this morning repenting of a few things before you. First, I want to take a moment to address those of you who are here this morning who may be members of the law enforcement community, former members of the law enforcement community, or family members of those who are part of the law enforcement community. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I have been ungrateful, sinfully ungrateful for the sacrifice that you make on a daily basis. I'm sorry that I give little thought to the fact that every single morning you or your spouse or your family member puts on a uniform and heads out to do a job in a very unstable world, in a very insecure world, a very uncertain world, and the one thing that you are certain of is that you would be willing to give your life to protect mine. I have been sinfully ungrateful for that. I read an interview with a woman who was present at the Dallas protests where those five police officers lost their lives. She talked about the fact that she got shot in the leg She fell to the ground and shots continued to ring out and people were running in every direction to get out of the area and two police officers ran toward her and laid on top of her with a full understanding of the fact that they could take a bullet while laying there to protect her. And they stayed there all the way through the situation until emergency personnel was able to arrive to assist her. If you're a member of the law enforcement community. I need to apologize that I've been less than grateful for the fact that you are willing to make that kind of sacrifice on my behalf. The second group of people that I need to spend some time repenting to 
are those among us who are of a racial minority. I've lived 30 years of my life and I have given very little thought to the difference of experience that you have in this country simply because of the color of your skin. I've given very little thought to the fact that I could be using my time, my energy, my platform of influence, my resources to bring about a real change in the way that you experience life in America. I've been silent when I should have spoken. I've spoken and said insensitive things. And I need to repent. Every person on the face of the planet, any skin color, any ethnic origin, any current place of dwelling is loved by God in a way that is unfathomable. My sin is that I have not shown a similar kind of love and compassion toward you. And what grieves me the most for both of these groups of people is that not only has my sin been toward you, but ultimately my sin breaks the heart of the Father, as does all sin. I need to repent of that. I have to believe that there are others in the room this morning who are in need of similar repentance. So I'd like to do something this morning that is maybe a little bit different, is maybe something that might feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I would like to lead us in a time of corporate repentance. And I would like to do so by inviting anyone who could use a similar kind of repentance to stand so that we can pray together. If you would like to pray to repent of your sins in either of those two areas, would you please stand? Let's pray together. God, we praise you that you are creator. God, that you have made all things. And that in so doing, Lord, you have a love for all people that goes so far beyond anything that we can comprehend, Lord. God, my prayer, my confession, is that I, is that we have not shown an appropriate amount of love for your creation. God, I know that my sin, that our sin breaks your heart. My prayer, Lord, is that you, your spirit would empower us to turn in a different direction, Lord, that your Spirit would help us to see one another with the same kind of eyes that you see us with, to hear one another speak with the same kind of ears that you hear with, Lord, to love one another in the same kind of way that you 
love those that you have created. Lord, would you help us to turn from our sinfulness and walk in repentance, Lord, to move in a new direction, to give our lives and our energy toward modeling the same kind of love that you have for us, God, that we would model that to the world. God, would you grow us in our likeness to you? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. We need to seek repentance where it's needed. The second is this. Seek to listen rather than to be loud. If you want to make a point that's actually going to make a difference in our current cultural climate, then make it a point to listen before you speak. There's a little three-word phrase in Exodus that always jumps off the page at me. It's found in Exodus chapter 2. What's happening in that passage of Scripture is that the Israelite people are in slavery to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians are making it increasingly more difficult for them to fulfill their obligation in the midst of their slavery, to do what they're being told to do. And they're crying out to the Lord in the midst of the oppression. Here's what Exodus 2, 23-25 tells us. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard them. And God remembered His covenant with them. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew White brothers and sisters, I believe that chief among our sins is not just a failure to listen, but a reluctance, maybe even an unwillingness to even hear. If we're going to be people who model the character of God, then we must be people who hear and listen to those who cry out in the midst of injustice. If you think the picture that the media is spinning is overly sensationalized or agenda-driven or inaccurate, then I would encourage you to sit down with someone of a different racial background and ask them what their experience is like in America. Sit down and ask a black person what it's like to live and exist in our society. Sit down and ask a Muslim person what it's like to live and exist in our society where there are people of large public platform saying that they want to ship them out of our country. Sit down and ask a Hispanic person or an Asian person or a Middle Eastern person what it's like to live here in America. And then just sit and listen. And don't do the thing that we do oftentimes when we listen to someone, which is plan our response instead of actually listening to theirs. Go one step further. Ask what their end goal or end vision would be. If we're going to recognize that racial tension exists and racial injustice exists, then go one step further and ask, what would it look like for this to end for you? And how can I spend myself standing with you in the midst of it? Or flip that around. Sit down with the police officer or their spouse or their family members and ask them what it's like to send their husband, their wife, their father out the door every morning knowing that there's a chance they're not going to come home. 
I'm ashamed of how long it's taken me to begin doing this, but I have started to ask some of these questions. Here's a little bit of what I've started to hear. I used to coach with a man who's one of the largest individuals that I know, and he's black. He's amazingly strong. He was a former collegiate football player. He told a story that happens to him regularly, which is that he'll be exiting a place here in Liberty where he lives. And he'll be walking toward his car from, say, Target or a particular restaurant, or whatever the case might be. And as he's walking toward his car, he will intersect with another family who's walking into that same place. And oftentimes, he'll make eye contact with a white individual who, intentionally or unintentionally, it doesn't matter, will reach into their pocket or into their purse and grab their keys and turn back and make sure the car is locked. It's like, I don't want to steal anybody's stuff. I just want to get in my car and go home. That's his everyday experience. I exchanged text messages with a friend. He said this. He says, honestly, it starts with conversation. I don't have the perfect answer of what could be done but conversation is always a good start. And it's mainly just using the resources you have to shut down any injustice that you may see. But to sit in silence while stuff like this is going on gives off the appearance that you're either okay with it, don't know what's going on, or don't care. It helps just to reach out and start to talk. He went on, I'm honestly scared. I'm scared for my friends. The most recent one hits close to home because my good friend Christian has a license to carry. He keeps the gun in his center console with his wallet. And I didn't ever think that I would have to worry about whether he would still be alive after a routine stop, but now I can't get the thought out of my mind. As I said at the beginning, I don't want to debate, change your mind about what happened in that situation, right or wrong. What jumps off the page there at me is that here is an individual that has a very different experience in life than I do. I'm friends with many white people who have concealed carry licenses, and I never think about what might happen to them if they get pulled over by a police officer. I never have to think about that. My friend does. Every day. It scares him. We have to be willing to listen. The black community is literally begging for someone to just pay attention. And as Christians, we should be the first on the scene. James exhorts his Christ-following brothers and sisters in this way. Know this, my brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. I can't confess that oftentimes I'm quick to be heard and slow to let someone else speak. We've got to be willing to listen rather than be loud. But we can't stop at listening. The next is this. Seek to understand first rather than be understood. I recently read uh, a study, an article, about what makes the terrible twos so terrible. The researcher said this, that a two-year-old doesn't yet have a fully developed ability to think about what someone else may be thinking or feeling. What happens inside their brain and inside their world is what they can only assume and imagine happens inside everyone's brain and world. Let me translate. A two-year-old doesn't understand that at six in the morning, 
you also don't want a cookie. Everybody actually wants a cookie at 6 in the morning. It's just that we don't eat them then. And so when you tell a two-year-old no, their only response is emotional meltdown. How can you not think the same thing that I think? This kind of curiosity about someone else's experience persists with us throughout life. It's why when you interact with somebody on vacation or out uh, to lunch somewhere and you get to talking about their job and they tell you what their career is, if it's vastly different from yours, you just want to know what that day is like. Like, I didn't even know that industry exists. What's it like to do that? What is it like to experience that thing? We want to understand how other people engage with life. But for some reason, we haven't been fast enough, church, to seek to understand what it is that the black community is telling us about their life in our world, in our country. We have to be willing to not just listen, but to press into the conversation, to ask enough questions that we get to a point of understanding. That we arrive at a place where we understand what's being said. We have such a beautiful picture of this in the gospel. The gospel tells us that Jesus put on flesh. He stepped out of heaven and he gained a full understanding of the human experience. All of its hardships, all of its joys, all of its temptations, all of its emotions. And as Hebrew says, because of that, we have a high priest who stands before God on our behalf and sympathizes with us. Because he understands. For us to turn a deaf ear to the pleas of those among us who are crying out for help is the opposite of modeling the gospel in the midst of racial tension that exists in our nation. We've got to be willing to not just listen, but to press in until we understand. I have to do better in this regard. I must. We must. The next is this. Seek injustice in the face of justice. There's a popular verse in James 1.27. Maybe you've never read the exact verse, but you've probably heard its uh, sense conveyed. And it's this, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Have you ever considered why that would be God's definition of religion that's pure and undefiled? It's because there's no one that's willing to stand for an orphan. They have no mother. They have no father. They have no one to rise to their defense. The same would have been true for a widow at this time. There was no one to support them, to be their advocate. With their husband gone, they were left on their own. And no one could rise to their defense. And God says, my people will. Because my people will understand that in the midst of their sinfulness and brokenness before a righteous God, Jesus stands as an advocate for them. There's nothing they can do on their own, and he stands in that spot for a believer. Religion that's pure and undefiled, Jesus, or James says, is one where Christians model that kind of advocacy for those who cannot speak for or defend themselves. That's why this church we stand strongly for the cause of abortion. It is a gross sin, 
a, a huge evil, and we will stand against it because who else is going to? In the same way, we ought to be willing to take that kind of stand against racial injustice, that there might be a group of people among us in this nation crying out for help, saying we need an advocate, we need someone to listen, to understand, to fight for justice on our behalf. It should be the church that arrives first and says, I will listen. I will understand. And I'll seek justice alongside you. If we really want to be salt and light in our current world, like we talked about during the Sermon on the Mount series, then it means we need to be willing to stand for justice even when the broken system benefits us, white brothers and sisters. Even though it's to our advantage. On Wednesday, as I sat in my office, I started to think about the fact that in college, I had, in a class, I had been asked to read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. And I remembered that inside that letter, there was a portion where he addressed the white church and his disappointment with white church leaders. And so I went back and I pulled it up and I read it. And here's what Martin Luther King Jr. had to say. He says, I have been disappointed with the white church and its leadership had the strange feeling when I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery several years ago that we would have the support of the white church. Instead, some few have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sideline and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas or principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were so God into- are too God-intoxicated to be intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. But now things are different. The contemporary church is so often a weak and ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. And far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of the things as they are. I hope the church as a whole will rise to meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. We will win our freedom because of the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. I read those and my heart breaks because that sounds like something that could have been written 52 hours ago, not 52 years ago. We have to be willing to stand against injustice. Last but not least, seek the kingdom in Kansas City and beyond. You might remember during our Sermon on the Mount series, we talked about the Lord's Prayer, which is found in Matthew chapter 6. It begins like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God longs to see his kingdom grow and expand in the world. And that only happens through his spirit 
working through his people in order to accomplish his purposes. In his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton talks about one of the beauties of Christianity being what he calls having a fixed endpoint. That if you've put your faith in Christ, you know exactly where you're headed. And you know enough of what that's going to look like to be really excited about it. There are places throughout Scripture where we can read about some of those eternal realities that we're going to experience when we get to heaven. And we don't have a completely perfect picture of it, but the book of Revelation four times mentions one reality. That there are going to be members of every tribe, every nation, and every tongue present at the throne there in heaven worshiping the Lord. The perfect end to racial injustice and racism in our world is going to come when we worship alongside members of every tribe, every nation, every tongue at the foot of the throne in heaven. There will be such racial unity in that place. It's going to blow our minds. In fact, I think we're not even going to notice that there are different races there. Bringing about the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven means that we work here and now for the kind of realities we're going to see in perfection there and then. Racial unity is one of those. And bringing the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven is not merely a prayer that God would do something miraculous from heaven, though he could certainly do that. It should also be a prayer for God to use us in the midst of it. It should be a commitment to being used by God to make this world look as much like eternity as we possibly can. We're never going to be perfect in the pursuit of it. Sin is always going to exist until Jesus returns a second time. But we ought to spend ourselves working on behalf of things here as we know they're going to be in heaven. So what does that look like? I don't like to stand up here and offer messages of this nature without giving some tangible things for us as a congregation to actually grab hold of and to actually do. Unfortunately, last Sunday, when this message maybe would have been most timely, I was on vacation in California. T.A. was on vacation in Minnesota. Jim was on vacation in the Dominican Republic. And praise the Lord, Randy Binkley was here so someone could give a sermon. (laughs) But we didn't have the opportunity to engage with this topic last Sunday. We also didn't have the opportunity to inform you that there was a prayer gathering that took place at a police station on the east side of Kansas City where members of the church across all racial strata, gather together to pray. But I can report that here in just a few weeks in August during uh, what's called the Global Leadership Summit, there's going to be a meeting of pastors from churches all over Kansas City, and I've been invited to be a part of that to talk about what does it look like for the church in Kansas City to engage in ongoing attempts at racial reconciliation. I don't know exactly what's going to come out of that, but once we've met, we will pass along that kind of information to you so that if this topic tugs at your heart, you can tangibly engage yourself in working uh, with it and toward some sort of different end, some sort of different reality. There's also a ministry growing here at our own church. It's the vision of Natalie Moultrie. It's something that she's been working on for about a year now. Uh, It's what is called The Wall Project. And its aim is to tear down walls of racial separation within the church. And there's a vision meeting taking place for that ministry on August 20th that everyone is invited to be a part of. We'll pass along more concrete details to you about that 
in the days ahead so that if you're interested, you can go and take part in meeting again with members of the church across various racial strata in order to talk about what does it look like to bring unity within the body of Christ, unity within our world today. We're going to end our time together doing two things here in our service that are going to exist in eternity. Those two things are that we are going to celebrate the gospel, the way that we celebrate and remember Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf here and now is that we partake in communion. And so if you've uh, said that you would volunteer and help us get our elements passed out, I'm going to ask that you come and begin that process now. The worship team can come on up because after we take communion, we're going to spend time worshiping together as one body, which is exactly what's going to take place in eternity. I believe very, very powerfully that in the gospel, and only in the gospel, is there hope that our world could find unity across racial strata. I believe very, very firmly that the perfect racial unity that we're going to experience in eternity can begin to come about here. Probably not in a perfect way. In fact, definitely not in a perfect way because sin is always going to exist. But we can begin to work toward it. And as Christians, white Christians, I think we should give ourselves toward working toward it all the days of our lives. And so as we pass out these elements, I want to just remind you what they are a picture of. They're a picture of the fact that God gave his son Christ to have his body broken on the cross on our behalf, that anyone who puts faith in him might have their sins forgiven and spend eternity in a right relationship with the Lord, that God gave his son Jesus to die upon the cross and have his righteous and holy blood spilled on our behalf so that it might cover all those who put their faith in him. If you are a believer, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to take communion with us this morning. If you're someone who has not ever placed their faith in Christ, we ask that you just pass the tray on because communion is for believers. It's to celebrate what our Savior has done on our behalf. I'm going to spend a moment praying for us and then we'll take these elements one at a time together. If you're in the back half of the sanctuary and you haven't received your elements yet, it's okay if you don't close your eyes during this prayer. God will still hear it, I promise. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we have the opportunity to come and worship together as one body, despite all of our beautiful differences. Despite the fact that we come from different socioeconomic places, we come from different racial heritages, Lord, we come from different ethnicities, thank you that we have the opportunity to come and to worship alongside one another and to lift our voices in praise to Christ who gave his life to save us. God, my prayer is that the church would work toward unity within itself and outside of itself, God, and that the unity that is seen within the body of Christ, regardless of racial or social or economic differences, would be just as described in John 17, that the unity would be so beautiful that it would draw people to the reality of Jesus and his work on the cross. God, my prayer as we take this this morning is that we would remember that Jesus died on the cross to begin making that a reality and that he is coming again to put it into its perfect place. 
and that we will spend eternity worshiping as one united body, lifting up a singular voice in praise to the Lord Almighty. And we will do that forever. God, I pray that as followers of Christ, as those who love you, God, would we give our lives to working toward making the here and now look as close as possible to what it's going to look like there and then. Embolden us, empower us to that end. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, take that little wafer. That is Christ's body broken for you. If you would, you can take that little cup of juice. That is Christ's blood poured out for you. Would the unity that we share as a body of believers be something that we seek in the world around us? I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to close our service this morning by worshiping together. Uh, Brian will close our service down here uh, when we're done. Thank you for being here.